0: Habakkuk chapter 3, if you will, please. And we studied chapter by chapter and verse by verse. If you remember when we started the book of Habakkuk, he was complaining about God using, he he registered his complaint to the Lord about him using a wicked nation, using the Chaldeans to to punish uh, God's own people, to chasten them because of their sins. And you know, God has a purpose in everything. If He permits a wicked nation to do that, He has a purpose in correcting His people. And we find that uh, He dealt with that a great deal in the first chapter. And then the second, He spoke of standing upon His watch and waiting to see what God would do. And the Lord answered Him in verse 2 of the second chapter. And then also we found in the second chapter, five woes in verse 6. Woe to him that increaseth that, that which... Uh, is not his. And then in verse uh, 9, it says, Woe to him that coveteth an evil covetousness. Uh, verse 12 was, Woe to him that buildeth the town with blood. And they did. And then we find verse 15, Woe to him that giveth his neighbor drink, that putteth thy bottle to him, and maketh him drunken. And then we find verse 19, said, Woe to him that, uh, that saith to the wood, awake. In other words, the woe there has to do with idolatry. Wait until the stone arise. It shall teach. And then we finished up with a book of uh, uh, in the chapter of, of Habakkuk with the twentieth verse. It says, "But the Lord, in contrast to the idols, but the Lord is in his holy temple, that all the earth keeps silence before him." And then we pick up in chapter three. Now, in chapter three, we have prayer and praise and peace proclaimed. Prayer, praise. And peace. The prayer moves into praise. The prayer he utters, and then we find that it moves into praise and praise, uh, uh, praising God for all His majesty and glory. And upon the experiences of the past, especially His deliverance of uh, Israel from Egyptian bondage under Moses, and many of the psalms could be used in relation to this passage of Scripture. And then we'll find peace after it was all said and done. At the end of the chapter, we find that Habakkuk has enough sufficient answers from God to be at peace with what the nation faces and for what may uh, be in the future. You know, when we come to the place that we turn it all over to God and realize that He will bring us out of chastening, bring us out of trouble, bring us out of problems, and then finally... We can be at peace knowing that all is well. You know, we sing the song, All is well, all is well with my soul. And so Habakkuk, Habakkuk, though he had a number of questions to begin with, had all the answers uh, by the time he got to the end of his book. So let's pick up with verse 1, and we'll take it uh, as we progress along. First of all, it says, A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet upon Shigunoth. Now I don't know how do you pronounce that, but I just do the best I can. If any of you got any better way to do it, we'll go ahead and pronounce it that way. Uh, It's a prayer of the prophet, and then it says upon Shigannoth, and this indicates uh, that it was set to music. You go back to the certain psalms, and you'll find the plural word mentioned. I believe it's in the seventh psalm. Looking the seventh psalm, where David says, well, you'll see in the heading on the seventh psalm, it says Shiganea or something like that, S-H-I-G-G-A-I-O-N, of David. This is the plural word you find in the psalm, the seventh psalm, of the word that we find back here in Habakkuk. Psalm 7, verse 1, and you'll find it in the, the uh, heading probably there before you read the psalm. Before the first verse, it says, David prayeth against the malice of his enemies. In my Bible, sometimes you have a kind of an introduction depending on whose uh, Bible you have. And then it says, uh, uh, Shiganoth of David, which he sang unto the Lord concerning the words of Cush the Benjamite. And back in Habakkuk chapter one, uh, 3, verse 1, it says, A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet upon Shigunath. And we said that that means, actually it means loud crying. The, word, the meaning of the word is loud crying. So his prayer was with energy and with uh, fervor. You know, the Bible tells us in the book of James that the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And, and uh, this is written in the form of a poem, too, in the original. And it kind of gives the meaning that it was uh, a psalm, as some of the psalms that we referred to, uh, one of them at least. And there are many of the Psalms that are written in that fashion. Now then, notice the prophet's prayer. You'll find it in verses 1 and 2. What is he praying for? It says in verse 2, O Lord, I have heard thy speech. He'd been listening. He's on the watch in chapter 2, verse 2. He says, I will watch to see what he will say to me. Chapter 2, verse 2, The Lord answered me. So he gave him a, an answer to what he was concerned about in chapter 2. And now he says, O Lord, I have heard thy speech. And what he had just heard was what we have read in the remainder of the second chapter. Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. Because remember all the woes? We had five woes. Woe, woe, woe. Well, no wonder he would be afraid. When God warns us, we should fear. And he warned the prophet and the nation of what was coming. And so here he says, uh, O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. And then he said, O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known. And it says, in wrath, remember mercy. So the first thing he prays for is revival. And it seems that Habakkuk himself was revived by the end of this chapter that we read concerning his experience. And also, he's asking that the people be revived in the midst of years. It's not a bad prayer for this day and hour, is it? And it certainly will not be a a prayer out of place in the future when God's people and when people need to repent and turn to God, especially when the chastening hand of God comes upon nations and upon His people in the future. So it will certainly be a proper prayer. So he says, Revive thy work. In the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known. And notice this statement. In wrath, he knew God was going to judge them, punish them. But he says, in wrath, remember mercy. Isn't that a wonderful thought? Wrath, not only only for the Chaldeans, but for the people that are the unbelieving of his own. And also the judgment that they were to face. In wrath, remember what? Mercy. It's a good thing God remembers mercy in wrath. If you turn to the 103rd Psalm, if you turn back quickly to Psalm 103, I want you to notice what it says. In verse uh, 8 and 9 and 10, look. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. And He says He will not always chide Neither will he keep his anger forever. Now look at verse 10. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. He knows how frail we are. He knows how much we can take. He knows how far chastening should go with His own. In wrath, remember mercy. I'd like for you to flip over to the book of Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. And I want to point out, in wrath, remember mercy too. In this fourth chapter. When we look at the throne. After the rapture. This indicates the rapture in the fourth chapter. Because John says, after this I looked and behold, if you have it a door was opened in heaven and the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. This is indicative of the rapture of the church. It's a picture of it. John was caught up in the heaven just as God's people will all be caught up. In fact, we'll find in the fourth and the fifth chapter that they're already in the presence of God in heaven. And so it indicates that they've already been taken up. And we could go back and show you the three full division of the book of Revelation, uh, look in chapter 1, verse 19. 1.19, it says, Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. Now, the things which were seen was this glorious vision in chapter 1 of Revelation. The things which are, the church age covers chapters 2 and 3, and the things which shall be what? Hereafter, after this, after these things. Chapter 4. So everything from chapter 4 on is future of the church age. After the church is gone. It's all future. And that's the simplest division of the book of Revelation. And if a person misses those three points, you're going to miss the, you're going to miss the chronological order of things that take place. Uh, It's only after God's people are taken out, and chapter six shows that the first seal was opened, and then the judgments begin to fall, and the tribulation period comes. So someone says, "Well, will the saints of God go through the tribulation?" Not according to this; they'll be taken up before. And all the scriptures that I've studied indicate that they'll be—they won't have to go through the great tribulation. We're talking there'll be tribulation. You know, the Bible says. Uh, Paul, and then in one of the writings of Paul, he says, we know that we through through much tribulation must enter the kingdom of God. So Christians have tribulation, but not the great tribulation that we're talking about. But I wanted to show you, I got sidetracked already. We wanted to show you in this chapter, though, the, the wrath, in wrath, remember mercy. Let's just read on down and I'll try not to expound the whole thing as we go along. Uh, for a, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. The first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven. God's throne is the throne of judgment, isn't it? And one sat on the throne, and he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone, and there was a rainbow round about the throne, in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders. We can show you how that these represents uh, the saints of the Old and New Testament that are with the Lord in heaven. And we won't have time because when we teach the book of Revelation, you'll get that. It says they're going to be clothed in white raiment and they had on their heads crowns of gold. Now out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. That's judgments. Judgment. Now look. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now then, uh, <clears throat> it says, uh, and before the throne, there was a sea of glass likened unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne uh, were four beasts full of eyes uh, before and befi- behind. Now then, what I wanted to show you as we uh, begin to read. And I'll find it in just a moment. What verse is it that says the rainbow? Verse what? Verse 3? Yeah. I wanted to come back and concentrate on verse 3 now. I kept on reading to show you the elders and so on. But look, in verse 3 it says, And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone, and there was a rainbow round about the throne. Now there's the point of in wrath remember mercy. Because God gave Noah a sign in the heavens. And this rainbow was a guarantee or a covenant with man that God would not again flood the earth with water and judge it with a flood upon the earth. A deluge of water. Deluge. So, he has kept that word, hasn't he? And God always keeps his word. And I can rest assured, and you can, and all of mankind can rest assured that God will not judge the world with a flood anymore, because he said he wouldn't. Now, it didn't say he wouldn't judge the world, world with fire, because there's an indication that the next time the world is judged, it will be a fiery judgment. But on the other hand, the rainbow. Remember, the, this is the Christians are here assembled before the stone. There's a great white throne judgment in the twentieth chapter, where the wicked dead, in verse ten, I believe it is, where the wicked dead will be before the great white throne judgment, Revelation twenty ten, and on down the rest of the chapter. So, but the Christians, all Christians will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And you know, in God judging you and I, even though His throne is the throne of judgment, He's going to remember mercy because we're saved by the grace of God. And we're not going to, it says in John 5, verse 24 Verily, verily, listen, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on Him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation or judgment but is passed from death into life. So there's the, the great white throne judgment believers are exempt from because Jesus took that judgment upon Himself. And God is not going to judge you and I who have received Christ as our Savior for the same sins that He judged Jesus for. He judged our sins in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if God were to say Jesus was judged for your sins and mine, and He paid the penalty, He did on the cross. And if He paid the penalty for our sins, and God says, He paid the penalty, but I'm going to make you pay it, that would be wrong, wouldn't it? God is a just God. and and That's why we have refuge in Christ. That's why we have security in Christ. That's why we believe on Him and trust in Him because He bore our judgment and our penalty on the cross of Calvary. And God is not going to exact that same penalty from you and I if we believed on Him as our sin-bearer and the one our substitute. He's not going to exact it from us. And so there's a rainbow round about the throne. And these elders, if you'll notice, there are 24 elders, and we won't have time to teach the book of Revelation. But I just wanted to point out, in wrath, He will remember mercy. Even when He's judging then, He's going to remember mercy for you and I. The rainbow, alright, let's go back to the literal happening of it. In Noah's day, the, the world was judged because of sin and punished. And the judgment came, and only Noah and his family were saved. And then God gave him that token of the rainbow in the skies. And God was saying to Noah, what I've already judged, I'm not going to judge again. The rainbow round about the throne in Revelation, God is saying, what I've already judged, I'm not going to judge again. It was a throne of judgment. You read the psalm, and he says, he has set his throne in the heavens. It says, he has set his throne for judgment. But he's, the covenant is that he, what he's judged, he's not going to judge again. And it's symbolical of the fact that Jesus has made a covenant with us based upon His shed blood and what God has judged with the shedding of Christ's blood, which is our sins, and the penalty due them, you're not going to judge again. It's already been done. I'm thankful for the Bible and how definite it is that that can give peace. That can give peace to every believer. If you thought God was going to judge you again for the same sins, that He judged Jesus for, why did Jesus come and die? What would be the purpose? If you're going to have to pay the penalty anyway, God just sacrificed His Son for naught. Well, He didn't do that for naught. The Bible teaches us that Jesus paid it all. And we sing the song, All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Alright, back to Habakkuk now. Chapter uh, 3. It says in verse 2, O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known. And he says, in wrath, remember mercy. That's what we've been talking about. Then he goes on in verse 3. He says, God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. Now, he's reverting back to God's deliverance of the children of Israel from bondage. And you'll see some some, uh, words that indicate... uh, The things that took place under this deliverance and how God uh, saved them. But I want you to notice particularly some words. When it says Selah, that means it's like in this poem or this song. It means to pause or to lift up. It's time to just pause. in it. So let's read it that way. It says, God came from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. In other words pause and think about, think about it a little bit. Think about God's deliverance when He delivered the children of Israel. You can go back in Deuteronomy and Exodus and see the area from which God came to deliver His people and Moses brought them out safely. And He speaks of His glory. We find it begins in verse 3. His glory covereth the heavens and the earth was full of His praise. Was full of His praise. And His brightness was as the light. So we find the praise of God begins. The praise for what He has done. Moses also begins with a similar declaration. Look in Deuteronomy 33, verse 2. Deuteronomy 33 and verse 2. Notice what it says. And he said, The Lord came from Sinai and rose up from Seir unto them. He shined forth from the Mount Paran. And he came with ten thousands of saints. From his right hand went out a fiery law for them. You see the tenor and the way that Moses points much to the same thing in his praise of God. And blessing God for their deliverance. That was Deuteronomy 33, verse uh, 2 and 3. And you could go on and on with that passage of Scripture. But turn back now to Habakkuk. Hold your place always where we're studying. I need not remind you, but I do find that uh, it's necessary once in a while, so we will be sure and have uh, this in view. Uh, Not only was the deliverance of Moses, or Israel under Moses' leadership of old referred to, but we, we can also say that it's deliverance for God's people and has been from age to age, from time to time. In many various ways, and it's also a symbolical and and uh, could embrace the future. Some say that the word "God came" is God is coming, so it could it could uh, the word "came" could also indicate a future coming of the Lord, the coming of the Lord for judgment and for redemption. In fact, in this chapter, you'll find He's the coming that's spoken of as we magnify the uh, omnipotence of God and the majesty of God in this passage of Scripture, we'll find that it does end in their redemption and also in their peace. We said it would be prayer and what? Praise and peace. And at the end of it, you'll find that Habakkuk is very uh, much satisfied that everything is okay in spite of all that's happened. And um, uh, I'll be glad when we get to that part because I think it will convince all of us. But you could read uh, of a lot of the history of the nation and see how that this will revert back to their deliverance and their salvation and also how that during the ages from that time till now and especially uh, through Jesus for His uh, spiritual call and, and chosen people who believed in Him, all believers of all nations and people have experienced this uh, deliverance in their own individual lives and we have in nations and in people since that time. They, deli- they were delivered out of the hand of the Chaldeans. They delivered out of the hand of the Babylonians. And then we through the ages have been delivered, Christian people, from time to time. And we know the individual application could come to us. But then when we think of the future, He's going to come in power and great glory. God cometh as a future event. And He is coming in judgment. And He's coming in deli- redemption. And He's coming in deliverance. And He's coming to bring peace. Look at uh, the fact that He comes not only for the Chaldeans in power, but for His people. And in uh, Matthew 24, verse 29 and 30, the Bible speaks of Jesus coming in power and great glory. Uh, give, let me give you a couple of references. Look in Isaiah 63, verse 1-6. through 6, Isaiah 63. We're talking about the future of this aspect of the coming and then we'll give you one in Revelation. So Isaiah 63. Who is he that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Basra, this, that, that is glorious uh, in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength? I speak, I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Wherefore art thou red in thine uh, apparel and thy garments like, like him that treadeth in the wine-fat? Wine Now look at verse 3. I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me. For I will tread them in mine anger, and trample them in my fury. And their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. And I looked, and there was none... To help, and I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore, mine own arm brought salvation unto me, and my fury it upheld me. And I will tread down the people in mine anger, and make them drunk in my fury, and I will, look, bring down their strength to the earth. Now, look in the book of Revelation, if you will, chapter 19 and verse 13. Chapter 19 and verse 13. When Christ comes in power and great glory, it says, and he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. Isn't his vesture mentioned back there in Isaiah? Now look here. He's clothed in, with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed... Him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. Here's the judgment. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and treadeth the winepress. Wasn't the winepress spoken of? He treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And this 19th chapter is speaking of Christ coming in power and great glory at the end of the tribulation period. After, after there's been much judgment and much tribulation to endure. And that's the end of it. So, you can see a past aspect of what Habakkuk's is talking about because he does refer back to, and we'll, as we read it, we'll see he does refer back to to uh, Israel's deliverance out of Egyptian bondage where they've been for 400 years and leading them into Canaan's land. But also, he's referring to uh, a future aspect. The future coming of the Lord for judgment and redemption. So let's look in verse uh, 3 again. You have Habakkuk 3, verse 3. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His glory covereth covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise and his brightness was as the light and he had horns uh, coming out of his hand and there was the hiding of his power. The hand signifies uh, a signifies power, the right hand of his power. But the, the horns here speak not of literal horns, but speak of brightness of light, flashes of light. In fact, if you have a marginal reference in the original, it says bright beams out of his side. So when it speaks of the brightness of God, it's just as if He is uh, magnified with light, not only uh, all over, but especially as far as His power is concerned. He has great power. And there was the hiding of His power. There was the hiding of His power. It was not completely manifested to the full. When God manifests His power to the full, we, we need to do like Moses did, says, Hide me in the cleft of the God says, I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock. Then, so that when he, God's glory passes by, uh, it would not destroy Moses. Remember? And we sing a song, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Right? The Bible says that no man could look upon God and live. The Bible says, Our God is what? A consuming fire. And there was the hiding of His power. Now then, in verse. Five it says before him went the pestilence, and burning coals went forth at his feet before him did not the pestilence go as uh, previous to their deliverance? God brought the pestilence in pharaoh 's day by the hand of Moses, and before him there was the pestilence and burning coals remember when the burning coals and the lightning flashes and came at the feet of Pharaoh and all the Egyptians and the and the death of the firstborn took place and and they fell down dead because of God's power. And then the death angel passed over and the whole land was affected. Before him went the pestilence and the burning coals went forth at his feet. Remember Moses said, Pharaoh, you're going to see hail in the middle of the day out of a clear blue sky? There's going to be lightning flashing and hail coming and balls of fire? And they did. It all came. And then By the way, in the dark clouds of wrath and judgment, the prophet sees Jehovah to be concealed. It it all comes, but God does not reveal Himself fully. We're going to find that there's an indication of the earthquake. The earthquakes that shake the mountains. Look in verse 6. He stood and measured the earth, and He beheld and drove asunder the nations. And the everlasting mountains were scattered, and perpetual hills did bow. His ways are everlasting. When God sent the earthquake, He sent earthquakes in Moses' day, didn't He? If you remember, it says... Uh, Mount Sinai was on fire, and the earth did quake, and the people were scared. And they said, Moses, you talk to us, but don't let God talk to us. They were scared to death. And the people what? Stood afar off. And everyone has to stand afar off if they do not have a mediator. So Moses mediated for them. We have the great mediator now. And we can draw near. Ephesians chapter 2 says we draw near or nigh by the blood of Christ. Ye that were sometimes afar off are made nigh. By what? The blood of Christ. And you're going to always come back to that redemptive blood if you're going to approach God. We sang the song, I believe it was Sunday. Some through the waters, some through the flood. But it said some through the fire, but all through the blood. And all are going to have to approach God through the blood. I'm going to preach on the Lamb of God pretty soon and over in Revelation. No, I better not turn there. I'll get sidetracked. (laughs) But anyway... Uh, let's get back to this. It says, uh, He stood and measured the earth and beheld and drove us under the nations and everlasting mountains were scattered and perpetual hills did bow. His ways are everlasting. He looks and the nations tremble. <coughs> With this sixth verse, He draws nearer and nearer. This indicates the trouble which precedes His coming. And in verse uh, 7, He says, I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. This means the Ethiopians, by the way. And the curtains of the land land of Midian did tremble. Midian is the Arabian coast along the Red Sea at that time. Was the Lord displeased against the rivers? Was thine anger against the rivers? Was thy wrath against the sea, that thou didst ride upon thine, thine horses and thy chariots of salvation? This is symbolical language referring to God's deliverance of, and opening up the Red Sea for uh, Israel to pass over. And then later on the Jordan when they went into Canaan's land. The rivers and the sea many times in the book of Revelation they'll represent and be symbolical of nations and world powers. And God's power will inspire the, uh, and turn upon the heathen nations during that time in the future. He says, Thy bow was made quiet. You see, God is He's pictured as having a bow that's ready. Thy bow was made quite naked. In other words, it was opened up and ready to go. It was seen, according to the oaths of the tribes, even thy word, Selah. Selah means pause and rest and think about what God has done. Thou didst cleave the earth with rivers. The mountains saw thee and they trembled. Here's all the praise of God's majesty and glory. The overflowing of the water passed by. The deep uttereth his voice and lifted up his hands on high. Remember what happened when the Red Sea was parted, it was parted, and lifted up on each side, and the children of Israel went across dry shod, and Pharaoh and all the Egyptians came into the sea and, and God turned it loose and it drowned them all. Someone says the Red Sea's not very deep. Well, it was at that time, and others have said, well, it never was over three foot deep. Well, the miraculous thing about it then is that God could drown a whole army of Pharaoh and all of his chariots and horsemen in three feet of water, isn't it? You see, God is powerful, and He can do with water and wind and waves and fire what He will do. And you know, all of history, in fact, all over the world, there's evidence of the deluge, of the flood in Noah's day that people try to, the infidels try to deny, and yet every nation in the world has their own story of the flood. Of course, we take God's word for it, which is sufficient. It's all we need, isn't it? If God says it, I believe it happened. And of course, everything in science and in Uh, archaeology proves that it was was so. The layers and strata of rock and sand and all kinds of uh, fillings and things of of this uh, world. Over here, the other side of Brother Nichols there at Almagoda, where you see all those white sands, that was once a big lake covered with water. You say, well, preacher, what makes you say so? Well, it's just evident that that's a part of the history and the movings of, of this earth. It doesn't take anything away from our faith. It doesn't make anything different. That God has changed it through the years. And that there's, you know, why do you find the oil down there so many hundreds and thousands of feet or hundreds of feet below the earth? Because you had all the things that happened to bring it about so that you'd have the existence of that this day and hour. Remember, can you remember back in the, oh, like in the, I believe it was the 70s? when this great scare came out that there was not any oil enough in the whole world to support us for another three or four or five years. I mean, you just couldn't be found regardless of what nations you look to. You see, God has given this earth plenty of supply. And it's still, we, we've got untapped areas in our own country, in Alaska. and, and uh, In fact, we've got tapped areas too where they've got it in reserve. They drilled the oil and they found the oil and they put a plug in it. And it's there when we need it. Don't ever think God left this earth without sufficient to take care of it. I know man is wasteful. That's true. And we waste more than we should. But God knew, knew how wasteful we were going to be, I suppose. But the thing about it is, God has provided for in His ecology of everything that takes place. He takes the water. Circulation of the water. And what takes place with that? Let's go on with this. It says... Uh, in verse 11, the sun and the moon stood still in their habitation. That did actually happened jo- in Joshua's day when he was in battle. He says, God, he said, he's going to pray. And he said, God, I want you to hear this prayer because we're in trouble. Sun, stand still. And the sun stood still on Mount Gilboa about a whole day. About. It didn't say a whole day. About a whole day. Look back in Joshua chapter 10, verse 12 and, and uh, 13, I believe it is. Joshua 10, verse 12 and 13. <laughs> It says, Then spake Joshua to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. Joshua 10, verse 12. And he said in the sight of Israel, sun stand still upon Gibeon, and the moon in in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stayed, until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. See that? Now, as far as man, we say, well, the sun doesn't stand still, no it does, but to to man it appears to and he's talking about what it looks like to man. We know that uh, the rotation of of the sun and the earth and things that take place, and I'm not that much of a uh, to understand all of it, but I know that God lengthened the day and you know if you want to know look in isaiah thirty eight I believe it is verse eight it said about a whole day, remember and then isaiah thirty eight Verse 8, God is going to give Hezekiah a sign in answer to his prayer. Let's read verse 7. And this shall be a sign unto thee from the Lord, that the Lord will do this thing that he has spoken. Now look, behold, I will bring again the shadow of the degrees which has gone down in the sundial of Ahaz ten degrees backwards, so, that, so the sun returned ten degrees, by which degrees it was gone down we could show you how that, that makes up the whole day. And the, the people that have found that, studied back and found that one day on their calendar was wrong, they found out that it was made up for in history. And that's the only way they could account for it is to go back and look at what happened in Joshua's day and in Hezekiah's day so that it would equal a whole day. Now, let's look at this. Coming back to the book of Habakkuk, if you will, quickly. Habakkuk chapter 3. And we'll try to finish this. As quickly as we can. It says in verse eleven, The sun and the moon stood still in their habitation, at the light of thine arrows they went, at the shining of thy glittering spear. Speaking again of them, these terms have to do with the poetic, symbolic majesty of God. In God's power, in God's delivering the children of Israel, and in what His power is that He can use at any particular time. Thou didst march through the land in indignation. Thou didst thresh the heathen in anger. That's when He brought them into Canaan's land. Thou wentest forth for the salvation of Thy people, even for the salvation of Thine anointed. Thou wouldest woundest the head out of the house of the wicked by discovering the foundation under the neck. Selah. He got rid of the enemy, didn't he? Destroyed Pharaoh and his army. You know, one day God's going to destroy our arch enemy, that great enemy. In fact, in Paul's day, Paul says there's going to be a day that the Lord will bruise the head of the serpent, or bruise Satan under his feet shortly. Look in Romans chapter 16 and verse 20. Romans 16 and verse 20. Let me read this for you. It says this And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The coming of his judgment. Romans 16, verse 20. The God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. And then look in the book of Revelation, chapter uh, 20, in verse 1. Well, here's where we find the final of it. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having a key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on, that, on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Now we know that after a thousand years he was to be loose. But look in the 10th verse. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. That's the final outcome of the Satan. Revelation 20, verse 10. Now then, back in Habakkuk, if you will, chapter 3. Let's progress on and finish this. In verse 14, Thou didst strike through with His staves the head of His villages. They came out as a whirlwind to scatter me. Their rejoicing was as to devour the poor secretly. Thou didst walk through the sea with thine horses. God is seen as coming through the sea. He didn't actually have horses, but His power was of such. Though, Though the heap of through the heap of great waters. You see, when Pharaoh came through, when God's people came through, it was as if God was riding through the waters on horses, leading them and taking them. But then it says, uh, through the great waters. Now, it's walked through the sea. But Pharaoh's army didn't walk through the sea, did it? Verse uh, 16, When I heard, my belly trembled, my lips quivered at the, at the voice Rottenness entered into my bones. This is the prophet himself. This is the effect upon the prophet, upon Habakkuk. He says, And I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble, knowing the majesty of God. When he cometh up unto the people, he will invade them with his troops. Now then, when you come to verse 17 on, you'll find that the prophet finds peace after he's had this praise of God and his power. Look at verses 17-19. through Before we read that, we're going to see how different the opening of this book and the burden of Habakkuk when he said, look back in chapter 1, verse 1. The opening of it. See how different the opening of it. Look at verse 1. The burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. O Lord, how long shall I cry? And thou wilt not hear. Even cry unto thee of Violence, and thou wilt not save. Why dost thou show me iniquity? And he goes on to say in verse 4, Therefore the law is slackened, and judgment doth never go forth. For the wicked doth compass about the righteous. Therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. Down in verse, uh, last part of verse 13, he says, When the wicked devoureth a man that is more righteous than he. Wicked were devouring men more righteous. The Chaldeans were more wicked.